Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethacoupis. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place by accelerating scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. Here on Substack every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and the world. What is progress and how do we get more of it? It's a core question here at Faster Please and something Jason Crawford has been thinking a lot about. Jason is the founder of Roots of Progress, a nonprofit dedicated to establishing a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century. There, he writes about the history of technology and industry and the philosophy of progress. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me again. You are part of a growing, I think growing, intellectual movement that aims to understand two big things, why human progress happens and how to speed it up. First of all, why is this of interest to you? How did you get to this point? Yeah, so look, most of my career for almost 20 years was in the tech industry. I have a background in computer science. Uh, I was a software engineer, engineering manager, and tech startup co-founder. And uh, about five plus years ago, um, I just started thinking about, I, I got really interested in progress. It began as an intellectual hobby. And uh, I just came from the perspective that the progress in material living standards over the last couple of hundred years, I mean, more than an order of magnitude improvement in, in industrialized countries, is basically the greatest thing ever to happen to humanity, or at least at least way up there, you know, in the top three. And if you, if you care about, you know, human well-being, and you look at this fact of history, I think you have to be a little awestruck about it. And I think you have to ask three basic questions. One, how did this happen? Two, why did it take so long to get going, really get going? Uh, and three, how can we continue it into the future? What do we mean by progress? Are you talking spending power or are you talking human lifespan, progress, leisure time, people could define it differently? What, generally, when when you're talking about it, we use the word progress during this conversation. What are you talking about? Yeah, there's at least two uh, basic and, and important meanings to progress. So one is uh, progress in our capabilities, our ability to understand and control the world, science, technology, industry, infrastructure, wealth accumulation, and so forth. Um, but then Jason, I love that wealth accumulation part. Yeah. Oh man, I love hearing about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very, I mean, surplus wealth is very important oh. and infrastructure is a form of wealth, right? Um, but then there's an even deeper, I think the ultimate meaning of progress, the true progress or human progress is progress in human well-being. Um, the ability to live longer, happier, healthier lives, uh, lives of more freedom and choice and opportunity with more things open to us, more ability to, for self-actualization. Um, and, uh, you know, ulti ultimately it's that, uh, it's that human progress that, that matters and is why we care about it. Yeah, I think a lot about choice and opportunity, sort of the human freedom aspect Sometimes when I talk about it, people will, will uh, kind of condense it down to stuff. Like you just want more stuff. How much more stuff do we need? But I think there is a there is that deeper meeting, which is I think, and I don't think most people who are into this, who are interested in progress and these questions, are 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 interested in it because of this. They just think we want more stuff. But it's really about I think those deeper, sort of the deeper aspects of it that you just mentioned. Yeah. Well, so first off, stuff is underrated. Uh, I, people like to sort of dismiss it as if, you know, material comforts don't matter. They matter a lot. 
Um, and I think people just take sort of the current level of affluence for granted and they don't think about how life could be way better. You know, people in 1800 were, were if you ask them, they would probably say they were fairly satisfied with their lives as well. But they had no idea what was possible. Um, but you're right that it's not just about stuff. I mentioned choice and opportunity. Think about um, the ability that um, that the average person has, at least the average person in, in a reasonably wealthy country, to live where they want, to have what the kind of job that they want instead of having to be a farmer or just having to accept the trade of the, you know that their father had, um, the ability to marry whom they want, when they want, to have children or not, and how many children to have and when to have them. Uh, the ability to go on vacation. There's a lot of just, you know, these things that we take for granted now that, again, people did not always have. So it's not just about, um, you know, a full belly and a roof over your head and a warm bed to sleep in at night. Those are great things. And again, they're underrated. But it's also about um, romance and knowledge and exploration and excitement and adventure and all of those human, you know, and self-actualization and self-expression, all of those very human values, which are, um, you know, psychological values, those are also supported and enabled by material progress. Do we still not know how progress happens for the most part? I mean, I think we know institutions are important. And the economic historian Deirdre McCloskey talks about what she calls the bourgeois deal, in which innovators say, and I quote, let me creatively destroy the old and bad way of doing things. The ox carts, the oil lamps, propeller planes, film cameras, factories lacking high-tech robots. Let me do all of that, and I will make you all rich. End quote. Do we need to know more than that? Yeah. So, you know, those questions that I posed earlier, I'm obviously not the first person to ask <laughs> any of them or, or to even to deeply study them. Um, so, I'll, so two things. So, first off... Um, I think that while the knowledge is out there and is maybe well-known to academic experts who study this stuff, I don't think it's ever been given a really great popular treatment. And definitely not one that goes into, remember the very first question that I posed was literally how did it happen? So when I started, I, I, I went into this study and I'm now writing a book because there was a book that I wanted to read five years ago and I couldn't find it. It didn't exist. I, I don't think it does exist. I wanted to learn what were, in one volume, in one summary, what were the major discoveries and inventions that created the modern world and that gave us the standard of living? And I think, um, you know, putting that, and I wanted to really understand, like, what were we doing wrong that made agricultural productivity so low? What were we doing wrong that made disease so rampant, right? What were we doing wrong such that we were all, you know, stuck, uh, you know, most people stuck going, you know, not very far outside their village their entire lives, um, and I mean, I, I, doing wrong is a little bit of a, I mean, I say that a little tongue in cheek. Obviously, it wasn't we were doing something wrong. We just didn't know how to do it better. But what did we have to learn? So um, I don't think that that has ever been put together in a very accessible summary for the general public in a, you know, in a single volume. Now, you, you said, you know, a lot of this information is out there, but it's no more to academics. We need to popularize it, though, though for sure, we're not just talking about old papers uh, that we're going to refer to. This is an ongoing academic uh, pursuit. There's plenty of new research on the Industrial Revolution, uh, on, on how you create today a modern, fast-growing economy, how you increase productivity growth. It's a well-researched topic, but on which the research is definitely ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the other part of it, which is that even within academia, even at the, at the you know, frontiers of knowledge among the experts, um, there are open questions, and there's still, frankly, a fair bit of disagreement. 
Um, if you want a good summary of kind of the academic literature and where the state of the discussion is at this point, there's a new book that just came out, uh, How the World Became Rich by Koyama and Rubin. It does a good job of summarizing kind of where is the academic literature on this. I do think there's a fairly good um, consensus, uh, or at least you know, uh, uh, among most folks in the uh, in the field, that institutions and culture somehow are at the root of a lot of this. Uh, both the original, you know, how the the great enrichment began, uh, and also why some nations have caught up and others haven't. I think there is still um, a good amount of open question at a sort of fine-grained detail level. If it's in, well, if it's institutions and culture, well, which institutions exactly and which aspects of culture really make the difference? You know, um, you can look at Britain and you can say uh, they were able to create the Industrial Revolution in part because they had a great deal of economic freedom, among other things. Uh, but then you can also look at various Asian uh, countries that have caught up uh, in, in a large part in terms of economic growth with. Uh, with some economic freedom, but certainly not the level that Britain had. Um, and even Britain was sort of, you know, missing, weirdly missing things like um, for more than a century after the South Sea bubble in 1720, uh, it was extremely difficult to create a corporation, like a, um, let alone a limited liability corporation, right? So you could make a partnership like Bolton and Watt, uh, but to do a corporation, I believe required an act of parliament for over a hundred years. Now, Making it easy to create corporations is sort of a key institution and ultimately a key part of economic freedom. Britain was able to start the Industrial Revolution without that. So if you if you want to really understand what's going on here, you have to get to a pretty fine-grained level, and I think that is still an open area of research. I think that's an interesting point you bring up. It's not just these bits of technology that somehow they happen, and thank goodness they did, and maybe in the future we'll get more grace. It's really kind of a whole society thing where you, you have culture, you have institutions, you certainly have innovators. In the, in the newsletter I, I write about, I write about movies and TV shows and, and, and books, the cultural aspect. I'll, I'll talk to uh, technologists and I'll talk to economists because it all kind of, you sort of all those pieces added together are what create progress. Yeah. And I mean, um, you can look at economic freedom as one, uh, uh, one thing that happened in Britain, in Britain that helped create the industrial revolution. But I also think it is not at all a coincidence that Britain was the land of Locke and Bacon and Newton Right. There was a much deep, there's something much deeper than just uh, laws and politics going on, something at the level of philosophy and culture, I think, that enabled them to uh, to break out the way they did. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of this is the belief that we can solve problems. The solutions may create other problems, but then we can solve those, too. It's about a belief that we can make tomorrow better. But it's not about creating a utopia because some of those solutions, of course, are going to create new problems. Yeah. Um, I do like the term solutionism, and in fact, I adopted that term in um, an opinion piece I wrote for MIT Technology Review a little while ago, uh, where I was talking about you know optimism versus pessimism, and how um, those terms. I mean, the, I, I tend not to use the term optimist because um, there are different types of optimism, and you can have uh, complacent optimism where you just assume that there aren't going to be any big problems or that everything will go fine no matter what we do, and that is a, a big mistake. Um, you can, but you can also have uh, more uh, prescriptive optimism uh, that says, look, we may or may, may not be facing large challenges. Maybe the world is even not heading in a good direction, but we have some agency. We have some ability to work and to, and to fight if necessary and to create a better world. And so let's go about it. Um, and so, you know, sort of blind optimism is just complacency, but blind pessimism is just defeatism, and neither of those are good. So I, I, in that editorial, I use the term solutionism to 
try to get at this mentality that both acknowledges the reality of problems, but then also acknowledges the possibility of solutions. I think that's the, the mindset we need. I mean, I'm not a big believer in utopia. As long as the utopia is populated by flawed humans, but I don't think this is the best of all possible worlds. And a world of progress doesn't necessarily mean, you know, some transhumanist vision. It can be better without being utopian. Yeah, I think the the mistake in utopian visions is the notion that utopia is a sort of static end state that we don't that we get not, to then and then we stops. stop and right. we don't progress beyond. Right. And um, I have a much more dynamic view of, of, of what even utopia is or could be and of the future. Yeah, I, my view is one of continuous progress where we keep getting better and then we get better after that and then we get better after that. And, and by the way, David Deutsch points out uh, in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, that every step of progress along the way will create new problems. And that is not an indictment of progress. It's simply the nature of progress. The same way that advancements in science open up new questions that we don't know how to answer, uh, you know, advances in material progress or in technology, technology will open up new problems that we don't yet know how to solve, but can solve with the next iteration of progress. There was this nice BBC profile recently of the progress movement that you were featured in. And it said that among progress thinkers, and I quote, there is an entrepreneurial bias towards action. Perspective benefits of a new technology dominate considerations of what a bad actor might do with it. The fear of missing out overwhelms the fear of losing everything, end of quote. Do you think that's a blind spot? Are we too dismissive of how things might go wrong? I think that could easily become a blind spot for the progress community, and um, that's why I... That's Part of why I don't like the term optimist or why I think it can be misleading. That's why I talk about um, you know, complacent optimism as being not the mentality we want. We want to acknowledge and engage with these with these, you know, many of these very real risks and concerns. Um, if we don't, the future will go badly, and that's not what we want. Um, and there are good examples of this. You know, early in the development of genetic engineering, some people started to realize, hey, uh, if this, if we're not careful with this, we could be creating dangerous new diseases. And uh, they actually put a, uh, a moratorium on certain types of experiments. A voluntary, they called for, you know, called for this, and got together about eight months later at a conference. This is the famous Asilomar conference, 1975, I think it was, to discuss safety procedures. And they came up with a set of um, of uh, danger levels or risk levels for, for different types of experiments. Um, and they came up with a set of safety procedures matching those levels. Say, okay, look, if you're at bio risk level three, you should be doing safety procedures X, Y, and Z. Um, so the simplest, maybe you don't even need, I don't know, a mask or, you know, gloves or whatever. And then at the absolute highest level, you're in an extremely, you know, controlled room. You've got like a full suit right. on. Um, and the room is uh, negative pressure so that the door accidentally opens, the air blows in, not out, et cetera, et cetera. You've got all of these things, right? Um, and so that was a pretty effective uh, method of, of proactively, by the way, this was not in response, very importantly, this was not in response to an outbreak. It wasn't like they created the disease first and killed a bunch of people and then said, whoops, let's figure out how to not do that again. They actually anticipated the potential risk. You know, but they did so not on kind of like vague uh, fears that were motivated by just some sort of anti-science or anti-technology sentiment. They did so by look just very hard-headedly, rationally, logically looking at what could happen and how do we prevent this. Um, 
And how do we prevent it, by the way? You know, how do we make progress and also have safety? So I think ultimately safety has to be a part of progress. Um, in fact, historically, getting safer is one of the is one of the overall aspects of progress. We, on a day to day basis, at least, um, if you, if you set aside sort of you know potential tail risk, um, but just look at day to day safety. We are much safer today than than we were in the past. That is an accomplishment, um, and really, a, a world of progress ought to be a world in which we are getting continually safer. Right? If we're not, we're missing some important aspect of it. Of course. Then there's the other side who assume certainly any more technological progress, will just make the world worse. The other day for the newsletter, I, I wrote this piece about a movie and its sequel I love. I love Blade Runner. I love the sequel, Blade Runner 2049. But it just sort of you know occurred to me that there's a lot of amazing technological advances. You have fully sentient robots. Uh, we have space colonies. You have flying cars. Yet it's, it's a terrible world. It's a world where it seems like most people don't live particularly well. Uh, the climate is horrible. And there wasn't really a mechanism, I think, in the film to say why things are bad other than, well, it works for the film because it creates drama. Do you feel like you're making the contrarian argument in this society or you're making, uh, you're, you're making the argument which maybe most people believe, but maybe they forgot that they believe it? Yeah, I think it has become contrarian to uh, to think that continued scientific and technological and industrial progress will actually lead to human well-being. Um, I think that was not contrarian, say, you know, a little over 100 years ago. Certainly before World War I, that was uh, pretty much assumed, and you could just sort of take it for granted. Um, and then ever since the, the wars and the Depression and, and everything, you know, that, was a, that was a major shock to the Western world. Um, everything seemed to be going really well. And then all of a sudden, uh, in fact, people were even optimistic that technology would lead to an end to war. They thought maybe uh, technology and industry and this economic growth and everything and free trade was all leading to a new era of world peace. And then it absolutely did not. And so that was a, a very rude awakening that it turns out, you know, moral progress and technological progress don't actually necessarily go hand in hand. Um, we can have stagnation or even regress on moral issues at the same time as technology is racing ahead. And um, I think that was a shock to the to the Western psyche, um, from which, and maybe in some sense, we have not, you know, fully recovered. At the heart of progress, is it essentially a a capitalist democratic philosophy, or is it not necessarily either of those things? I, I mean, I write that I am not going to create a better world that I want to live in that is not fundamentally democratic capitalist. Now, it doesn't have to be. Capitalists exactly like the United States. Maybe it's going to be capitalists like Scandinavia, but I think something that would be recognizable as capitalist and be recognizable as a democracy. My image of the future, that's at its very heart. Is that part of progress studies or is that, is that a different issue? Is that what you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I love the notion of a capitalist future personally, but uh, but that doesn't mean that everybody shares that view. So historically, certainly that has. Are there socialists part of it? Right? Are there are there pro progress yeah, I mean, socialists? Uh, yeah, well, they, so historically, I mean, the early Marxists, right, and the and in the, in the in the early Soviet era, some they were very yeah utopian. Pro, it's yeah, they inherently had, a, a utopian, and and I, I love. I, I love retweeting images from you know about from the Soviet space program, some of which were very. You know, Soviet, you know, lunar bases. So that was part of it. But I wonder if today and it wasn't, it's still and it wasn't the same. just space. I mean, they yeah. wanted to industrialize the farms. They wanted to have huge power plants. There was this, yeah, there was this ethos that 
technology was going to, you know, bring us into the future. Unfortunately, it was a collectivist future, um, uh, and it didn't turn out so well. But uh, today, um, you know, there's still a few folks um, uh, who who believe in progress and want some sort of full socialism or communism. There's this notion of, like, fully automated luxury communism. Right. Um, but mostly I would say the proponents of progress are more general proponents of some, you know, broadly speaking, kind of, you know, the liberal order, right? Or right. liberal democracy or whatever you want to call it. Um, within that, there's definitely a broad range uh, of, of, of sort of political ideologies. On the one hand, you've got libertarians who say, like, look, the thing, the way to make progress is to get the government out of the way. On the other hand, you've got, you have a spectrum from that to the progressives who say that the way to make progress is to have massive government investment in right. progress. Um but, you know, what I like about the progress movement is that the, the very notion of progress gives us a shared goal and a value and some common ground to actually have these discussions about. And we can now actually debate all of our preferred policies on the basis of what's actually going to cause progress. And let's bring history and data and evidence and logic, you know, to the discussion. And I think that would be a healthy discussion to have. What's the biggest reason that you think you are not utterly wasting your time here? Some people would say, look, so we have, you know— we have a half century where progress seems to kind of slow down. There's a lot of theories that all, you know, all the easy gains have been made. And yes, we might, you know, things will get better, but it's going to be very, very slow. People were talking about leaps and accelerations forward. Uh, they, that, is, that is the world of science fiction. Why do you think that things can not just be better in the future, but that pace of improvement could be such that people notice it? What I'm imagining is a pace of of material progress, of, of health, where it is noticeable to people, where people would say, yeah, I think something's happening here. Do you think that's possible? And why are you confident, if so, that that is possible? I mean, look, the pace of progress is already such that people see lots of progress in their lifetime if they are able to notice it, right? What are we doing right now? Recording a podcast? That's not a thing that existed 20 years ago. Um, you know, uh, Wikipedia didn't exist or barely existed. I mean, the, you know, the, the entire explosion of the internet, you know, has happened within most, you know, most within living memory, right? Um, not to mention we didn't have mRNA vaccines and, uh, you know, there's just, there's, there's a lot of things. Um, uh, soon hopefully we'll have, you know, supersonic airplanes again and, and, and rockets to the moon and Mars. And I think there's plenty of progress to find if you look for it. One reason why I started the newsletter was I sort of really felt for the first time since uh, really since the 90s that like something something was happening, even with the pandemic. If we're in an age of progress, I think that feeling, again, is palpable and noticeable to people. Yeah, I hope so. But, um, you know, facts don't interpret themselves and people can look at the same facts and come to very different conclusions. So ultimately I think we need not only the progress to show people the continued progress to show people that continued progress is possible, but we also need the voices who are pointing this out and explaining it because uh, the fact is that, uh, you know, even in the greatest possible era, there will be some curmudgeon who says that uh, this is the end and uh, none of this stuff is very good anyway. And even in, uh, you know, in, in eras where not very much progress was happening at all, like the age of Francis Bacon, you know, Bacon and some of his contemporaries could look around at just a few scattered examples of, of inventions and discovery, like, like the, the new continents that being discovered and gunpowder and, and the compass and the printing press. And they could extrapolate from that to essentially the Industrial Revolution, which is an amazing act of, of vision. So in any era, you know, no matter how well or badly things are going, there will be some people who, who, you know, see it or don't see it. 
And so, uh, again, ultimately, that's why we need more popular treatment of this stuff, right? We need to tell the story of progress and make it accessible to the general public. That's what I'm working on. If we're talking in 10 years and things really don't seem to have gotten a lot better, what do you think probably went wrong? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you said 10 years. At a very deep level, I think this is a generational project. I think changing people's attitudes at this fundamental of a level, the sort of thing that um, really kind of you you speak to the young and you you get through to people when they're still uh, open to changing their minds and, and are still thinking deeply about the world. And hopefully in the next generation, uh, you know, you can you can have a shift. You said that every high school in America should have a curriculum of progress. What is it, What are the stories that would be in that curriculum? What would people be learning? Would it be would it be a class or would it be sort of just be kind of in everything? It would be in science class. It would be in history class. Yeah, I think it could be certainly be integrated into some of those classes. I think it falls most squarely in history. I think it certainly could be a class on its own or or incorporated into the general curriculum. Um, now, I actually created a high school level uh, progress course, uh, a course in the history of technology, essentially. Um, it was uh, commissioned by a private high school called the Academy of Thought and Industry and is still being taught by them. In fact, I believe there's, a virtual, there's a virtual option. So you can, even if you're not enrolled, you can take it online. Um, and we'll uh, a link to that. We, yeah, absolutely. Sure. And uh, we cover a number of major topics. Uh, the, the major topics are agriculture, uh, materials and manufacturing, energy, uh, transportation, information, uh, medicine, and uh, safety. And then we do a little bit about kind of looking forward uh, to the future. But we cover what were the major, you know, developments in each of those. So in ag- agriculture, we'll go into things like mechanization of agriculture and the invention of the reaper and the combine harvester. We'll take a look at soil fertility and how uh, fertilizer was was understood and developed. Um, we'll look at things like food preservation uh, and, and refrigeration and freezing and so forth. And so just kind of dive into some of the major developments that you know, took us from a world where, I mean, in agriculture, took us where a world, from a world where half the workforce had to be farmers, and yet uh, we still had uh, constant famine, periodic famines, and also people had very, uh, not very varied diets of, of, and not very fresh food. And then today we have this world where a small percent of the workforce can provide everybody with a robust, reliable food supply of fresh, you know, varied food, that complete transformation of the food world. And we, and we look at what created that. And then we do the same thing in transportation and energy and manufacturing and so forth. And when you're, when you're done with all those modules, all of that adds up to a really dramatic picture of how the entire world was transformed in, and life was transformed in every dimension. Jason, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's been great.